welcome to the DFIC Podcast. This is the DFIC Podcast. Take some time out of your day to join us as we connect with McMaster alumni and inspirational professionals to hear about valuable advice, different career paths, and discuss investing with our investment team. Please note that this podcast is for educational purposes only. Career or investment ideas provided in this series or during its making are not endorsed by DFIC, McMaster University, the DeGroote School of Business, or our partners. All career and investment risk is undertaken by the individual, and we, our partners and affiliates, are not responsible for any potential losses now and in the future. Hi everyone, my name is Marco and I'm your host for today's episode of the DeGroot Finance and Investment Council podcast. In today's episode, Emerging Public Companies, we have Investment Banking Associate David Baron, who will tell us a little more on why he wanted to work in investment banking, the value of volunteering, and hear his insights on non-deal roadshows as well as current trends in the industry. Hi David, thank you for taking some time to be on the podcast. Yeah, no problem, Marco. Uh, thanks for thanks for having me on tonight. No problem. So let's go a little bit into your background. So I know you have like a pretty untraditional background with your degree in environment and business, and you did a ton of non-banking internships. So for the audience who doesn't know your story, do you mind giving them a quick synopsis? Yeah, absolutely. So he said I did environment and business uh, undergrad at Waterloo. Uh, it was a co-op program there, so I had a bunch of non-finance related uh, non-banking internships, worked for the TDSB, did e-waste recycling, piece at risk research. Um, but afterwards, I went and started my own electronic waste recycling company. Um, that didn't work out too long. It was supposed to take me three months to get my um, license from the government and my accreditation. Uh, ended up taking me 13. So uh, in that amount of time, I decided to kind of fold up and uh, went back to school to do my MBA because I realized how much I did know about business. Um, once there, again, I did my MBA at Mac, uh, was the uh, in the co-op program because it was sort of a uh, benefit of my learning style. And even there, I initially wanted to go into operations management because I was sort of, uh, I had the experience there from the e-waste recycling. Um, it wasn't until my first co-op when I got a, you know, kind of BS job at the government and working in a supposedly finance position that I really kind of took a liking to it because while I was there, they didn't really have any work for me to do. So I started to teach myself about um, self-investing and equity research. And so I basically read Investopedia every day at work for you know a few months and uh, going into my second one, in the, my second co-op, I ended up at an equity research shop and really liked that and sort of met investment bankers from there. And that's sort of the route that I took uh, to get into it. So I really didn't realize probably till about, you know, I've been in the industry uh, coming on three years now, and I probably figured I'd want to try it out three and a half years ago. So I didn't exactly take the route that um, most people take these days, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy I'm here. Yeah, no, it's a pretty interesting route. So you said like Investopedia, were you using Wall Street Oasis or anything else at the time? Uh, no, Investopedia basically had uh, had everything for me. Then from there, it was sort of getting into my finance courses uh, that really kind of taught me everything. I finished CFA level one, uh, so I got a 
decent amount of uh, knowledge and understanding from from that course material as well. So it, uh, yeah, it was just sort of built on over the time. But there's a lot of transferable skills between equity research and investment banking. So it, it, that really helped me out there because I did four months of basically intensive <laughs> research into various industries because it was, again, small cap equity research. Uh, so I covered a wide variety of companies and industries. Okay, so then you were working at a boutique when you did equity research, right? Yeah, that's correct. And was there anything that attracted you to being on the smaller team of a boutique or anything along those lines? Well, again, kind of like the road I took to get here, I, I'd like to say that, oh yeah, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But uh, quite frankly, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, the reason why I started working at a boutique was because uh, they're, they're the first ones that offered me the job. Okay. <laughs> um but, but no, I mean, once I started working there, I really liked it. You know, I didn't follow, you know, a few big companies in one industry. I got a world of knowledge on a bunch of different industries. Work was always different. Uh, teams were smaller, so you had more responsibility. And it gave me a lot more of uh, exposure a lot quicker than uh, some people I know who say went and worked for, you know, one of the big, uh, the big five or big six banks. Yeah, for sure. And I think you get to work on a lot of interesting things as well. Like some of those companies that you were covering in like the micro and small cap market are some that most students or people are just going to be unfamiliar with. Yeah, exactly. And and quite frankly, I mean, you can get a lot of torque in investing in them if you're getting the right ones. Uh, you can see some pretty nice returns. But again, because you got you to gotta make sure you're picking the right ones because, you know, in small cap investing and whatnot, you know, if two or three of your 10 investments uh, hit it big, that's that's counted as a win. Honestly, if I get one in today's market, I'll count that as a win. <laughs> you know, anything's a win. Very true. Uh, so now you're at Integral, not doing equity research anymore. You're in investment banking. So can you just tell us about some of the companies that you're working with here? Like in terms of like micro and small cap, what's like the average revenue or multiple size for these companies? Uh... Well, so you got to understand that, um, you know, the multiple size really doesn't uh, really doesn't matter here because sometimes like a company can be doing really well on unreal growth, but nobody knows the story. So the multiple is not going to reflect uh, the value and the growth. But um, in terms of uh, revenue, you know, we try and uh, work with companies that have between sort of like the five and. $50 million uh, worth of revenue. Uh, generally, if a company comes to us and they're already public, you know, they're sub $100 million market cap. Uh, or if they're going public, they're going public around, you know, $20 to $50 million market cap. So those are sort of, uh, that's sort of the size of company we have. Um, and it makes it uh, fairly interesting because, you know, a lot of these companies, aren't yet profitable. So you really have to do a lot of due diligence on the market size and the the potential opportunities and growth opportunities that they have. And then what's the most common industry out of these companies that are coming out? If you asked me about a year ago, it would have been nothing but cannabis. Um, but now it's like, so the, the banker that I work with at Integral, uh, we've always kind of been um, diversified. So she's worked uh, tech, industrials, um, a few mining deals, but we don't really look at those anymore. Uh, but we info, we have like a plant-based plastics packaging company that we've worked with um, for about three years now. Uh, mobile gaming and online gaming uh, companies. Um, it's really, in the small cap space, you kind of have to be industry agnostic uh, and just 
because you know the the capital markets in Canada are so much smaller than in the U.S. Um, and the small cap space is even smaller. You you can't exactly be industry specific. It's it's a lot harder to do so um, because if an industry falls out of favor, you can pigeonhole yourself. So we're pretty. I'd say we're pretty industry agnostic. Um, but some of our best clients, yeah, I'd say were those two industries that we just uh, that I just mentioned. Okay, nice. And then, so your team right now, you're on the emerging public company team. Yes. Um, so this is kind of like a special team. Like if a student goes and searches up a normal banking industry group, they're not going to really see this. So can you tell us no, what, no. what's like it's, special uh, about it? Um, well, it's just one of those names that makes us feel special, if you will. <laughs> um, because we focus small micro cap, it's, it's just like a, a silly name to make it sound cool, if you will. Um, no, there's really nothing specific about it. It's just because my managing director and I have only ever done real small cap, uh, micro cap, uh, privates going publics. So we just decided to call it emerging public companies because we're really looking and we don't do a lot of deals every year, but we really look for solid companies with good management teams and fundamentals. So we consider them to be, you know, the next, the next big or the next small caps that will actually, uh, hopefully make it. Uh, and graduate to the big board. Uh, so that's sort of just how we like to position it, uh, position it for ourselves, and, as well as to kind of tell corporates the you know the kind of quality that we're looking for. From a business development perspective and building relationships, are you looking because they are smaller at business brokers like mid market M and A shops, um, like mm-hmm. venture capital, like smaller funds? Um, well, so so really what. Uh, what happens is um, because there's so many businesses out there, we really don't have to go looking uh, for them. They generally end up coming to us. Uh, they'll have uh, an IR team if they're international. They'll have an advisor that's bringing them in and bringing them around. And so they end up coming to us. And then if we like the company, we think it's good and, and it is a good company, they'll generally be uh, a few of the small boutique dealers uh, vying for it, so then you have to pitch the company on why to go with you. But in terms of actively searching out mandates, it's uh, very me. I mean, you can if you want, if you want to cert- like work with a certain company. Uh, but generally, generally they they find you, and then you say yay or nay if you want to work with them or not. Okay, after the intense due diligence, and then then you guys make that decision. Uh, well, it depends. I mean, if we think it could be a good company, then we'll go into due diligence, but um and do an initial but i mean we're not going to do that on every company well if we don't like the company right off the bat we'll just tell them no we're not going to waste our time if we don't think we can sell it or you know we don't think the market's right or the the story's right um you really only go into due diligence on companies that you see at face value as being potentials um and then you can decide if you want to work with them or not Okay, great. And then, so you mentioned marketing the company there. Some of us are going to be familiar with the term of a roadshow, um, but I know some of the transactions or marketing tactics you've used in the past have been non-deal roadshows. So do you mind like explaining the meaning of it and what the purpose is for a company? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this is, uh, so roadshows, you know, whenever you're doing um, an IPO or a capital raise, you know, you'll go around and uh, tell your stories to investors to get them to invest. 
Um, however, uh, a non-deal roadshow is exactly the same, just you're not selling a deal at the time. Uh, so basically, the company around the CEO is marketing the company, telling the story, telling how they've progressed. And these are actually uh, essential for uh, for small public companies because what a lot of um, entrepreneurs or CEOs that go public forget is that when you're a public company, you have to act like one and you actually have to go out and tell your story and market it to people because if people don't know your story, if they don't hear it and they don't hear that you're making progress uh, consistently over time, nobody's going to know about the stock. Nobody's going to trade it and you're just going to become orphaned and the stock's going to become really illiquid and you're going to lose a lot of value. So a non-deal roadshow is basically um, good to, as sort of an investor update. Uh, it puts the CEO in front of investors who are currently in the company or currently are not in the, uh, invested uh, so that he can tell the story for the first time or give them an update to keep them you know, committed and, and confident in their ability to execute. Um, quite frankly, a non-deal roadshow is, is more important than a deal roadshow because generally people don't invest the first time they hear a story they want to because everybody when they go and pitch a story every ceo they pitch a rosy uh, tale of you know hockey stick growth and oh we're going to be profitable cash flow positive but execution is you know nine tenths of any business plan so non-deal roadshows are good to say hey this is what i'm going to do over the next three months you know and then in three months time when i need money you know it'll give the investors more confidence that hey this guy told or female uh said they were going to do this they did it and so yeah okay i'm going to give the money because i trust them because i've seen them execute so that's it kind of in a nutshell yeah so essentially it's just proving themselves and giving themselves like that little test run or time before they actually need to execute and raise the capital yeah well and it's exposure because even after you raise the capital you still need to go out and continually give people updates and you know, interact with your investors um, because if you're talking to your investors, you know they're gonna they're gonna stick to your story. They're going to believe you. They're gonna trust you a lot more. Meanwhile, if you just take their money and you know never talk to them again, they're gonna be like, okay, uh, why would I stay and support this guy if he hasn't been or girl or whoever the CEO? If they haven't uh, you know reached out and, and and talked to me after I gave them money. So it's it's all a relationship game too, right? It, Okay. And do you find that like a issue with like CEOs or like the entrepreneurial type who are just used to kind of keeping to themselves, trying to grow the company as much as possible and not really, you know, worried about giving those updates to the outside world? Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, I've seen it a lot. And that's, that's also why whenever a company is going public, uh, um, you want to see that there's succession planning. If the CEO has no public company experience, or if he's not open to it, or if they're um, not able to perform, right? So I mean, if if you're bringing, if you're looking at a pub company who wants to go public, and you're looking at a CEO who, you know, isn't a good public speaker, doesn't want to step down after they go public, you're going to be less likely to want to invest in them, and from a, a broker dealer standpoint, will be less likely to take them on because the deal will be that much harder to sell. Yeah, I think succession planning is actually a pretty neat thing to bring up just because I feel like a lot of even students who want to be entrepreneurs, they always just see themselves, you know, being in the driver's seat for the whole process of the company. But there always comes a point where you may not be the optimal person to be the CEO anymore. Mm -hmm. 
yeah exactly there's there's certain people who can you know uh, can grow a company from you know 10 million to 100 million in revenue but then they can't get it up to a billion right so it's just it's knowing that you and somebody's willing to step aside when they can't run the business anymore the worst thing you can do is have somebody who's too married to the idea of running that business or that company uh, because at some point they could hit a speed bump and then drive it into the ground yeah, for sure. And I think um, there's so many real life examples of that going on. I mean, even if we looked at like Lululemon, for example, after they went public, their CEO eventually was just moved to chairman, I believe. Um, yeah. there's, there's a lot of the great examples. Yeah, yeah. And that's that. Yeah, that's what you need. Okay, uh, let's move on to trends in like the micro and small cap space. So right now, I'm sure if anybody opened up Yahoo Finance, there would just be a long list. Uh, global uncertainty news lingering on, you know, COVID-19 hit the markets in a pretty unfavorable way. So how do these events like affect the companies you work with and advise? Uh, they completely destroy any ability that we have to uh, raise money. Uh, we can, if we're on advisory, we can still do that. But raising money in an environment like this is is almost next to impossible because unless unless you have a group of investors who are willing to support it, um, who are already in the company, you know, it's hard to get somebody to, to look at a new story and a new small cap story when they're losing their shirts um, in the rest of the market as well, because, because when you have a market correction like this, you know, you look at the bank stocks, CIBC, I think is yielding 7%, uh, white cap resources is up around 20, you know, uh, BMO, TD, all those all those blue chip bank stocks are yielding five six seven percent um so if there is any dry powder on the side people are going to be investing in those stocks because they know they're going to go back up and they know they're secure rather than taking what little free capital they have and putting it in some risky small cap story so uh, it's 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 been a pretty slow week for us uh this week uh we're just sort of looking at potential mandates to sign up uh, down the line and uh, doing a little bit of due diligence on, on some viable candidates. What about more in terms of advisory, like interest rates have dropped down. Is that really incentivizing any companies to go out and seek uh, inorganic growth through like potential M&A activity? Um, yeah. So, well, actually one of, uh, one of the companies that I work with, I can talk about it because it was just announced, um, I guess, last week. Uh, good-natured products. They just uh, announced an acquisition of a of a mom and pop uh, thermal forming business up in uh, Brampton. So so some of them are taking advantage of it, uh, but the problem too is uh, it's hard for a lot of these small cap companies to get access to debt because they don't um, because the uh, the credit quality of them isn't uh, up to snuff. Because a lot of these companies, although they might be generating revenue, are cash flow positive. They're needing. They're going to chew through capital. They're not producing it, so it's a little bit harder for them to lever up and, and take advantage of the rates. Do you have any resources that you would recommend students should go to so they learn more about possible, like how to value a small cap company or different considerations they should keep in mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a number of them. Um, there's if you literally type into Google like small cap investing websites, uh, there'll be a whole slew of them. Um, there's a couple like Agoracom, 
small cap power, Ubica Research. Um, those are just two to name a few. And there's a there's a, a plethora of resources that you can find online that focus specifically on small cap. Yeah, small cap power has some pretty pretty interesting articles that they put up, like Equity Research. I think a Macrad works there as well. So that's always great. Yeah. And then, so right now, is there any specific sector in this um, category of like small cap to mid cap companies uh, that students should keep an eye on over the next year? Um, anything environmental, ESG companies um, that have greener products, uh, they should do well uh, from a macro level um, if they can execute. But also an interesting space to look at this year will be cannabis. Um, you look at how decimated all the stocks have become and there's going to be a lot of great assets out there that can be gobbled up for, you know, pennies on the dollar when, you know, last year Aurora Cannabis was paying three times as much. Uh, so it'll be an interesting year for consolidation in the cannabis industry. Awesome. Thanks for that. And just to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about volunteering. So this isn't uh, banking related. But when we first met, you asked me where I volunteered, and yeah. we both know I wasn't able to give you a good answer. So if you don't mind telling us, like, why does volunteering matter to you? And why should students place an emphasis on both volunteering and keeping up with the market, ensuring they know what's going on in terms of like valuation, investing, and being on track with their career as well? Uh, well, volunteering always will let you stand out. Um, quite frankly, uh, in today's world, everybody's so busy or everybody claims to be busy. And uh, so if on your free time, you're actually putting it into going out, helping out others who are less fortunate or doing something of that nature, uh, that'll stand out, especially for uh, if you want to work at uh, the larger firms. Um, they will always, always look at that kind of stuff. It's it shows that you can manage your time and, and still and give back while you know still performing and enjoying life, right? So it's uh, volunteering. I think is it's more important than being in all of the clubs and whatnot because although in school they tell you oh do all the clubs do all the clubs it shows initiative. Um, people are aware uh, as well that most clubs aren't that, um, you know, I guess, I don't want to say serious or anything like that, but you can get by with claiming a lot without actually doing a lot. So pe people understand that because everybody's gone through the, the school phase and whatnot. So, um, so volunteering uh, is, is, I'd say, a lot more important than, uh, than clubs. And, and not, no offense, because, hey, Marco, I like what you're doing with the, this uh, DFIC and the, the podcast. This is, this is something real. Um, but a lot of other clubs, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of uh, wishy-washy what, uh, what people will, will say they do. You guys join this club, be prepared, weekly meetings, going to be a busy year. Perfect. Hey, I like to hear that. I like to hear that you guys uh, do it right then. Awesome. Thanks, David. Thank you again for taking some time to talk today. And we really appreciate your insights. And we're looking forward to seeing your continued success in your career and with Integral Wealth. Thanks for uh, having me on, Marco. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, thank you and uh, have a good one.